I'll be reading out of John 14, folks. Let's go ahead and stand. Chapter 1, John 14, chapter 1 through verse 14. All right, it begins, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Believe also in me. Oops. Whoops. Um, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good evening. <clears throat> This is uh, traditionally the least attended Sunday out of the year. So if you do find yourself here, you are welcome. Thank you. Um, I guess you're, you get that extra, extra shot before the new year. I heard it. We all heard it, Dave. It's fine. It's okay. No one's going to tell on you. It's okay. Um, so I think actually starting this last year in 2022, we decided that our Advent series, once we finished uh, going through traditional Advent, what, what do we do with this Sunday? This Sunday is always the least attended. And I always joke that I got this Sunday, and it's uh, kind of the whatever Sunday, because it's not the Sunday you want to either jump back into a series or start a new series. Uh, this is a terrible week to end a series, but why not end a series anyway? So our Advent series does end tonight. So tonight's going to be on next Advent, second Advent. And I think we'll, I liked it last year, I liked it this year, we'll probably do it again. And if you have any major complaints about that or anything else, go ahead and send it to John at Refuge CF. Uh, tonight we're in John 14. And I do have to say that this is going to be somewhat of a continuation of the, um, the entry of, into the uh, Advent series I was able to do um, oh, a few weeks ago on the scepter. So this is kind of going to be a 
you know, I almost cheated because I got to kind of do my intro there and then we'll just continue now because it's fitting. And I think you'll see why we're doing that. We're going to a passage that I don't think very many people think of as a end times passage or a second coming of Jesus passage, but it very much is, and as you start to read it, you'll be like, oh yeah, of course this is. Um, as Matt read, you know, our John 14, it's, it's very much a Jesus is coming back sort of passage. And I think some of us may have even been able to recite it, maybe in a different translation, but to recite that passage, either in part or in whole, from just, I don't know if you went to Iwana or just growing up in the church, someone made you memorize it, but this is one of those passages that's pretty familiar. This whole section of John is actually really, really neat. A neat passage, you can imagine how special all of this message would have been. This is right before Jesus is going to be arrested. This is right before his uh, suffering begins in earnest. And we, we do this where we sort of highlight people's last words. Uh, if I had time, I would have pulled up some last words for some people. Uh, I didn't, though. I don't have time for that. But we normally will regard, these, these are the final words. These are the last words of someone, an individual. Sometimes it moves empires, like Alexander the Great and his generals, where they tried to figure out exactly what he really wanted from his final words. And sometimes they're not recorded. They're just two friends. They're just two family you can kind of take these chapters here after Judas leaves, but before his arrest. These are sort of his final words. If reading through these chapters, it's different. It's different than the teachings we get in Matthew. It's different from some of the other parables he gives in Mark and in Matthew. And it's different. As you read through it, it's, these are the 11 that are faithful to him, these are the 11 who will continue onward. These are his special teachings for them. And we're starting in chapter 14. Chapter 13 is where we, we could have begun, and it would, it would make sense in the context of the message we're going to look at tonight. But even some of those words were biting, right? Jesus talked about being betrayed, and they all said, oh, never, oh, we would never, I would never. And Peter even says, you know, I would die for you. <clears throat> Jesus says, yeah, after the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. So some of these are biting. But when we get to chapter 14, we look at this, and this is Jesus comforting his friends, his disciples, and even says in these passages, I no longer call you just my disciples. You're now my friends. But looking at chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled, Right, so he starts out with that. His intention is not to hurt. His intention is not to harm. His intention is to inform, but also to comfort. And, you know, we're just coming off of this Advent season. Hopefully you all had a wonderful time celebrating uh, the birth of our Lord, his incarnation. 
time with family. For us, it becomes that time of celebrating with family. We have our fun traditions and, and those types of things. But going back to the uh, message I gave a few weeks ago, I just want to kind of highlight on a couple of things. This concept and idea of peace on earth, or I should say of joy. Peace and joy are only really, um, they're only possible because of justice that the Lord will bring. And so the passage we looked at, that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's, where we talk, that's what we talked about with the scepter. This concept of God with us brings joy to our hearts because we know that the coming of Jesus will bring an end to oppression, will bring justice. And so in our hearts, once we follow him, we have joy. But to those who don't know him, to those who don't trust him, to those who are his enemy, the idea, the concept of God with us brings dread, fear, and it should. Because when the sun comes, darkness must flee from his presence. And the only reason we can have joy is because we know that because of Christ's justice that he brings, we know that the light will win. And so as we look at this, as we think about this, this idea of God with us being both a promise of comfort and joy and hope, but also a threat of justice that brings fear. We're going to look a little bit deeper into this phrase of God with us, and John 14 hits on that perfectly. Sort of the deeper teaching on just that phrase, God with us, what does that mean? Is it deeper than just Jesus being there? I, th- I think that it is. I think we can see that here. So let's jump into this passage here, John 14. Jesus continues in verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And so he's basically saying there, there's going to be room. This, this, I think, is more so that idea that, that you, you can all come. There's, there's room for all of you. Right? There's, there's many. And the reason why this is kind of funny is because he says, there's many places there in my father's house. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, which is it, Jesus? Are there lots of places where we can all stay? Or are you going and preparing a place? And the answer is, yes. There is room. There's plenty of room. There's plenty of room for everybody. But that's not the place that Jesus is talking about. It's also interesting here in verse 1, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And I think that's almost the, same, the, the other side of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. Because Matthew 24, 4, when they ask, what's it going to be like at the end? He says that he, well, we can turn there. Matthew 24, 4. Matthew 24, 4. Uh, I'll start in three. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us what these things will be, these, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, this is verse four, see that no one leads you astray or see that your minds are not deceived. 
is sort of the other side of that. Make sure your minds are not deceived. And he goes through kind of these events that are going to take place. This is different. This is a different opportunity that Jesus has to speak to them. Don't let your hearts be dismayed. This is the same type, of, this is the same word, the same type of idea. When Jesus went to go and visit Lazarus after he died, it says that his heart was distressed and he wept. Jesus is saying, don't do that. I want you to understand what's going on. I don't want you to be in despair. So he says, there's many rooms. He says, I go to prepare a place for you in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In verse 4, he says, and you know the way that I'm going. At least he assumed that they would have remembered from his teachings what he meant by this. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So these ideas here, this, this goes to them not quite grasping what he's talking about when he says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go to the Father. He had already preached messages concerning himself leaving. There are several times where it says, and he goes into detail about how he has to die, and then he's going to raise. They forget all that. They seem to not remember. But let's give them a little bit of grace. This is, you know, later in the evening, they were demanded by tradition to drink at least, you know, several cups of wine. I mean, we're, we're sort of at that time of the evening. Maybe they forgot. Who knows? But for them, whatever, whatever point they think he's making, he's, he's trying to remind them of some of his teaching. He says, don't, don't you know? Shouldn't you know? Don't you understand? Verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, I have been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? And this, I think, is where we start to get into that very weird part of Jesus' teaching here in John where he, he begins to have these conversations, I and my Father and he and me. These are very important things. They're very difficult to understand. This is where you could kind of sort of feel the, the treatise on Jesus trying to describe the Trinity in human terms. He says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Colossians 1, verse 15. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. Colossians 1. Verse 15. This is, this is Paul talking about Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What, she, what Jesus is trying to tell Philip, he says, you've seen me. And so you've seen the Father. He is the image of the Father. What's interesting is Paul says the the image of the invisible God. The Jesus that they saw, the Jesus they interacted with, he's like the Father. They should have seen the Father in him. 
back to John 14. Again, in verse 9, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father? I'm sorry, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What Jesus is highlighting is this relationship. It's not just the physical aspect. This idea of God with us is not only in a physical sense that Jesus was physically there. That's, that's obviously a part of it for them. And they would miss him when he was gone. But what Jesus is highlighting is Jesus is on earth, and he says, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. There is something more to this, and Jesus is trying to clue them in to this thing. We can forgive them for not quite getting it. Uh, verse 11, believe me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. If you can't quite grasp that eternal, relational perspective, at the very least believe because you've seen the things that I can do. Obviously, it's not just, it's not a parlor trick. It's not just a special event. This is because there is this connection, and he goes on to talk about this relationship that he has with the Father. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and the Father may be glorified. I'm sorry, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, these last two verses we just looked at, I feel like these are oftentimes the good verses that distract us from the main point. So we're not going to talk a ton about miraculous things that they did. We're not going to talk a, a bunch about them doing greater things. We're going to talk about is the reason why those things are possible. And I think that's the part of this passage that kind of gets missed. It has to do with this relationship versus presence. I think they play very well together, those two concepts. But let's, let's just look at a couple different things. And this is why I think this passage has a little bit more depth to it than we normally give it. Now we're going to go someplace that you probably didn't expect. Exodus chapter 40. Maybe you did. You might be ahead of me. And that's fine. But Exodus chapter 40. Giving you some context here. These last chapters have to do with a lot of the regulation around worshiping Yahweh, specifically in the tabernacle. So Exodus chapter 40, looking at verses 34. So this is after they have made the tent. This is after they've made all the implements, made all the things, put them all in there, installed all that. This is after the Ark of the Covenant has been brought in. You've got the altar in there. All those things. Verse 33, it says, And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Moses was the last foot out of there. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what you have there in the tabernacle, or in the Holy of Holies, was the presence of God, the special presence of God was there. And during the day it looked like a what? It was a cloud. During the, the night it was what? It was fire. So at night it gave warmth and it gave light. During the day it gave protection from the heat that they would not have gotten otherwise. This tent of meeting was something special. Uh, not just because of that presence of God, but it's because of where they were. They were in the middle of nowhere. They were in a wilderness. There was nothing around them. You could look all around and it was just flat nothing. Yeah, maybe some outcrops, but there definitely weren't any forests and fields and any of those types of things. There was nothing. But what did they, had, what did they have because of the Lord? They had shelter from the sun, from the cloud, that light at night. They had manna. They had quail. They had water. What else did they need? They needed nothing. It did not matter that where they were, there was nothing, because if they were there with the presence of God, they had everything that they needed, no matter what. And did it matter where they went? No. In fact, this continued for years, for decades. And it ended when they crossed the Jordan because they were then in the promised land. But while they were traveling, while they were on the move, when they made camp, they had all these things. And when they needed to move, then the cloud would start to move or the pillar of fire would start to move and then they would pack up and they would head on out. They followed wherever the Lord went. And I think it's important to understand that the presence of God was there, it was in the center of the camp. It was for them to understand that God was with them and they saw his benefits. They lacked nothing. Though you wouldn't know that by their complaining. But they had what they needed, despite being in the wilderness. Look at 1 Kings 8. And we have the same but different story. This is long after them being in the land. 1 Kings chapter 8 is when Solomon finishes the temple and they bring the Ark of the Covenant in. So looking at verses 10 and 11, there's actually a mentioning of Moses and the covenant that was brought to them when they left Egypt. So there is this acknowledgement of this having taken place before, but look at verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What does that sound like? It's exactly the same thing. The difference is this is now in the temple. Now it's an established house. It's not gonna move, but the same principle is there. The presence of God is there. The cloud fills the temple. They can't, they can't even get back in. I want to note something here. I said a few verses down, verse 27. Same chapter, verse 27. This is Solomon speaking. This is a prayer. 
of dedication. Verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. There's an acknowledgement there that while the presence of God is contained, or I should say is present there, it is not contained. There is not this idea that he is nowhere else. And Solomon acknowledges, you can't even fit in the heavens. You're not completely stuck in this little box inside of this room. That's, that's not what this means. And there's a difference between a containment. We built this box to contain God in. Or there's a statue where God is in. It's not like that at all. This is meant to be that representation of the presence of God. Not any thought that they would somehow contain him, as to control him. They learned that lesson. But instead, this was a dwelling place of God. He stays here. This is his presence. And that concept continues through. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 6. We, we talk like this as well about the Holy Spirit. This, now we start to mix some of these metaphors here a little bit. But 1 Corinthians 6, what's talked about there, we don't even have to go to it and just read it out there. It, it does say that we are the temple of the what? Say it loud and proud. Yeah. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So think about that. Now, the reason why I want to think about that is because we're, we're getting, don't worry, we're, we're, we're getting back to John 14. Don't worry. But think about that concept. Now, when you say you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, what does it mean and what does it not mean? When you personally say, you read that verse, say, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does it mean that the Holy Spirit is not in your brother or sister? Does it somehow contain inside of you? Is there a limitation there? Like only where you are is where the Holy Spirit is? Is that how we think about it? The Holy Spirit was here, but then I went up and got a drink outside, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit left here? No, we don't, we don't talk like that at all. We don't think that way. The Holy Spirit can be present in me and can be present in you at the same time, and we're not tripped out by that. Right? No, there's... We, 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 and maybe we might think about it. Like, that's a really weird thought. That's a cool thought. Nor do I think we think that, that a Christian has to be present in order for the Holy Spirit to be someplace. Does that make sense? Is the Holy Spirit bound inside of us because it says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Is that true? No. So these concepts, we already think through some of these things, and we already take it one step beyond just, it's just, you know, the Holy Spirit in me, and that's it or it's just the Holy Spirit in us. We would acknowledge the Holy Spirit is not only bound up inside of us in a weird physical way, or just each one of us individually. The Holy Spirit's not bound, but the Holy Spirit is present. Not confined, but present, right? And the only reason I wanted to walk through these different things is because there is a bigger understanding to being with God than just a place 
right? So going back to John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come and get you again so that you can be in this place that I prepare. And some of us might think, well, he's going to take us away from here, and I'm not going to be here, and I'm going to be in a different place, and almost like it's a confinement. Like we're no longer going to be able to be anywhere else. And I would venture to say that's actually not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying, I'm going to physically remove you from where you're at, and I'm going to put you in a different place. But it's kind of keyed into these, this uh, uh, thing that he mentions here in John. Where he says that wherever I am, there you will be also. So it can't just be that he's going to take us from the earth, we're going to go to heaven and put on our robe and play our harp and sit in our room. This room that he's prepared for us. Prepared for us. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like jail. There's a room made for me and I have to go to heaven and sit in my room. That doesn't sound fun. Now is that what we're talking about? It's not. But I think we can kind of expand that a little bit more. Now, the reason I'm saying all of these different things is because we've got one other concept here to kind of jump, at, jump down into, and that's in 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 8. In 2 Corinthians 8, we get something else to ponder. Trust me, it's all going to come together here at the end. 2 Corinthians 8, look at verse, uh, oh, actually one. Oh, no wonder, I'm in chapter 8. It's a different chapter altogether. Mm, is that right? I may have written it down wrong. Maybe I did. Let's instead turn to Hebrews 2. So it happens when your ink smears like that. Number doesn't look like the number I thought the number was. Hebrews chapter 2, we get the same concept here. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Hebrews chapter uh, 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we must... Uh, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. From since the messages declared by angels provide a more reliable, more transgressive. That's not it either. Look at that. Have I? Well, that's what happens when you write them down wrong. Hmm. All right. Let's try this. You guys remember the band? Um, they wrote the song Flood. Help me out. Ah, Jars of Clay. Bless you, Matt. Jars of Clay. Think of that concept of Jars of Clay. Anyone know where that passage is? What does that talk about? Inside jars of clay or what? Treasure. Inside these jars of clay. Now what is the concept that's meant by that? 
inside of these earthen jars, there is something that's eternal. Right? It's something that the world can't see. It's something that the world, when they look at us, they don't see maybe anything unique or specifically special about us. But inside, there is something precious. In fact, the passage I was trying to find, and someone might be able to find it, all of a sudden it's gone out of my head, is jars of clay. Uh, thank you. What about the tents? We live in tents. You got that one? You got that one back there in the back row? No, not that one. Uh, that was the one I was looking for. So you have this concept of the eternal things inside of jars of clay. But then you also have this concept of a tent. We live in an earthly tent. And that tent is wearing out. And we look forward to leaving this tent and instead going to an eternal house, a house that's built for us. And it would be easy for us to say, well, that's the house that Jesus is talking about. And in fact, it is. But it's not like a room. It's not a jail cell in, in heaven that we go to. It's something a little different. Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2. You don't even have to turn there. John chapter 2. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he's looking at the temple, and he makes a statement that haunts him all the way until his trial. They're talking about the temple, and he says, you know, this is going to get torn down. Tear this down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. I'm not sure why everyone took such offense to this, but man, did they. You can't tear down this temple. First of all, I think they thought it was like desecrating the temple, right? I'm going to tear it down. That's probably where that kind of feeling kind of came from. But he says, I'm going to rebuild that. Now, the thing is, is was Jesus talking about the temple? We know that now. Now we look back and like, silly people at the temple. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about his what? His what? His body. He's going to tear down this temple, rebuild it in three days. Have you ever thought about that? He said he's going to tear down this temple, and it's going to be rebuilt in three days. What, what was he talking about? When he says, I'm going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. Three days is the key. What's he talking about? Someone said it. He said it. It's the resurrection. In the resurrection, he tears down the temple and rebuilds it in three days. What was the tabernacle in the temple? It was the what? The house where God dwelled. He would dwell there. Not contained, not imprisoned, but that's where he lived. Well, on earth, if you wanted to go and see God, you might travel, you might make your way to Israel, and you'd say, where can I be in the presence of Yahweh? And they would say, they'd point east, and they'd say, the temple, probably. Right? They'd say, the temple. You go to the temple, and that's where the presence of God is. Jesus said, I'm going to tear this body down, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. 
Jesus is one of Jesus's acts on earth, one of his tasks his, in his mission was to become the place of dwelling that all others would come to you to be in the presence of God. Is the temple standing now? The temple in Jerusalem? There is no temple. Is there any place that we can go to find and to worship God on earth? Yes, there is. When it says that we are those awaiting for our tent to wear out to then go to a more permanent building, a more permanent house, that is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It also says that he's the resurrection and the life. It says that he's the door. And he himself said that he rebuilt the temple for his presence, right? So in all those things, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. When he says that, that that where I am, you will also be, what does he mean there? Is that just everyday Christian life? That's the culmination. That's so that wherever I am, you will be. But there's something we get to partake in now. Because it says that Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. We dwell in him. Because he has been resurrected, we now have an opportunity to experience that presence with God. Not in any specific locale. We don't have to go to a certain place. He himself is the resurrection. He himself is the life. He is who? He is the person. He's the what. He's the place where we can experience the presence of God. He is the temple. He is that place where we can interact with God. And now this sounds weird because we say, well, okay, how? Because I am here and he is there. This goes back to that idea that Jesus introduces here where he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Uh, A couple chapters after this in John 17 Jesus speaks this way about his own followers. He says to them, or he's praying for them, he says to the Father, that he prays for them that they might be one. They all might be one as he is one with the Father. It always seemed to me one of the more confusing passages to have to go through to try to figure out what in the world he's really saying. Have you read through John 17 and wondered what in the world is is all of this? But this is the interplay between relationship and the presence of God. Because even though Jesus was on earth, he could confidently tell 
his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he says that he and the Father are one. Verse 11 in chapter 17 says, And I am no longer in the world, but, I, um, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The difficulty here is we're talking about eternal type language. This is really the difficulty, but this is the promise. And I say all this because when we talk about end times type things, if we were to say we're going to talk about end times, we're going to talk about the end of the world, we're going to talk about the coming of the kingdom, what would you expect we would talk about? What would be the most important aspect of that? What would you expect? Because I've gone to many classes, I've gone to seminars, I've gone to the conferences. And some of the things they love to bring up as a timeline, a time frame, we love to bring up what's next? What's next on God's prophetic plan? Have you heard that phrase? What's next on, what's next up to bat? And We can go to certain passages where Jesus gets pretty specific, John gets pretty specific, Paul gets pretty specific on some of the things that are coming, and invariably someone will ask, are we going to be here for that? You know what I mean? We start to talk about things like earthquakes and floods, and even things get loaded in there that, that aren't anywhere in there, like locusts. I don't know, every time locusts happen around the world, they go, it's the end, it's the end. I'm like, Maybe. Not locusts like that. Look a little different. But I say all this because I think we forget the main point, the main thing, the thing that Jesus points to for the end, the thing that's most important is the resurrection. But as we talk about it today, I think sometimes we are so focused on where we are and being in a different place that we forget the profound nature of the resurrection. What the resurrection brings to us is the ability to be in the presence of God, to be with God, and to experience that with each other until he comes. That's the real point of the end times. In fact, what Jesus says right here in chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. Where was he? He says, I'm not in the world. But where was Jesus when he's saying this? He was in the upper room, sitting with his disciples, although I think at this point they're probably walking to the, I think they're walking to the garden, but anyway. But he's on earth. He's on earth and he's talking with his disciples. And he says to the Father, he's praying, I'm no longer in the world. What does that mean? It means there's more at play than just a physical presence. I'm physically here. And the Father is physically in heaven. Jesus is expanding these things. He's blowing them up. And he's talking to the Father saying, I'm not in the world anymore. They are, they're still in the world, 
We pray that you would separate them from the world. We're talking about concepts of presence and purpose. Jesus brings up here that fundamentally changes who we are as people. We are now, if, if we have trusted Jesus and his precious blood to be the payment for our sin, if we have trusted in nothing else except for him, for our salvation, There is something fundamentally different about us. It says that we are a new creation, and I think sometimes we, we cheapen that a little bit. It means, you know, I'm just going to cuss less or something. I don't know, but that becomes this, I'm just not who I used to be. It's like, no, you, you understand that you are fundamentally a different person with a fundamentally different relationship with God the Father, with God the Son. You are the place where the indwelling spirit is. There's something completely different about you. And because of that, you are no longer of the world. You might be walking around in the world, but you're not, you're not of here. In fact, the world, what happens in the world, in fact, a lot of things we look at the end times, when we think about end times, the second coming of Jesus and all the scary things. Whether you think that we're raptured out of here, whether you think we're sticking around through some of these things, it actually kind of doesn't matter. And that is very weird to say. There are Christians who suffer and die today for being Christians. It'll happen bigger at the end. But it really kind of doesn't matter. Because none of that has any bearing on you, where you are, what you're doing. We just live out this idea and this concept of being in Christ and him in us. And wherever we go, we are in the presence of God. There's a fundamental change in difference in our human experience because of those things that God has done. Because of the resurrection. A few things. A few things to think through in light of all of this stuff. Number one, um, the, it's death that made the resurrection possible. You might say, no duh. We talk about that all the time. But I want you to just pause and think about that. It was a death. It was a trial, a suffering, a death that then allowed the resurrection. A massive loss Massive L was necessary to get a massive W. It was death that allowed us to have life. What that was was a fooling of the enemy into actually helping to accomplish the purposes of God. Right? Death led to the resurrection. And the reason I say all that, we are now, if we are fundamentally different people, because of who Jesus is and because of the resurrection. It means the same for us. We can look at our life and say, wow, there's some massive L's in my life. But you know what? That should be leading us to big W's. Maybe not how the world sees it, but how the Lord sees it. I only say that because we're not greater than our master. But because of the resurrection, we're able to go through it. So that's kind of point number two. The resurrection is our victory. 
The resurrection is our victory, which means that whatever the Lord is bringing us through here, it leads us to that place. It leads us to the resurrection. So if you're looking for healing, and you can say, well, God, doesn't God want me to be healed of my sickness, of my illness? Yes, but that's not ultimately what the goal of Christ's coming was, was to make you not sick. Because eventually, eventually we still die. Right? I mean, people are like, wow, it'd be so cool to be like Lazarus, and I died, and I came back. I was like, really? Because he had to die again. Like, that wasn't it for him. He's like, oh, good, Lazarus, you're back. Just wait 20 years, right? Or whatever it was. It's not like he now is alive forevermore. No, he had to die again. So whatever healing is received here, you are still looking forward to the resurrection. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our ease. You may never get to use your retirement fund. You may never get to enjoy some of the things that you think you are going to enjoy because the Lord might have different things for you to do. So if there is something that you experience, you say, wow, that was a massive loss. Just recognize that in the resurrection, you have victory. It is already decided. In the ultimate end, you cannot lose. There is nothing that the enemy can do to you. There's nothing that the world can do to you that will fundamentally change any of that. Again, there's nothing they can do. It doesn't matter. Why hasn't the Lord come? Why haven't we experienced the resurrection? What are we waiting for? It's kind of the third thing we can think about. Jesus promised he's going to make a place for us. He did so in the resurrection. Now why are we still here? <laughs> well, it's because of mercy and grace for someone else. And that's the reason why you're here. It's because there are others that need to be saved. There are others who... What if the last generation was like, Jesus, why, why haven't you come? And Jesus is like, oh, you're right, I forgot. And like, he came. What about all of us? Well, God was waiting for us, and now he can finish it, right? No, it's God, in his mercy and in his grace and in his patience, his patience in sin, he is fulfilling his purpose. This is the fourth, fourth point. Um, sorry if this hits you weird. Uh, there's no other way for me to really put it out there, but the rapture is not our hope. Sorry, it's not. The rapture is not your hope. The resurrection is. So whenever you think the timing of the rapture is, we need to stop thinking about that as our ultimate hope. And our hope is the resurrection. Because we may not make it to the rapture, right? I know for the last 50 years at least, lots of people thought, oh man, it's, it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen tomorrow. Okay, next week, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year, whenever you think that's going to happen, it doesn't matter because that's not your hope. Your hope's not the rapture. Your hope is the resurrection. And some of you may think, well, of course it is, in which case, yes. Yes, it is. Death is inconsequential in light of the resurrection. Suffering is inconsequential in light of the resurrection. We are not greater than our master. And so we will experience trouble, difficulty, and in fact, the entire world is against us, either actively or passively. But it's the resurrection we're looking forward to. The rest is truly inconsequential. 
yeah, too often we see the end times as just a timeline, the what's next on the timetable, what events should we look out for, who's supposed to be in power, what countries are the bad things supposed to happen in, when, the, when those bad things happen, what's the next thing that's supposed to happen. And I'll tell you, all of those things, while they might be interesting, and some of them might be worth looking through, because, yeah, we do get some insight into some of those things, none of those things are our focus. The focus for us is the resurrection and warning those under wrath that the kingdom is coming and encouraging others who are saved the end is coming, which, of course, is where we started, right? God with us, that's either a promise or a threat. It's either good news or the worst news you ever heard. And that's our job. That is, that, and the, the idea of co- uh, God with us has cosmic implications for all those who we sit down and explain it to. And those things have impact on us even now. It's not just a future thing. Do we live in a reality of God with us, of being in Christ? Do we excuse ourselves from proactive holiness because we're ignoring some of these different principles? Do we, do we not really live out all the things that we're supposed to because we think, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's all going to happen some other time. It's, it's all in the future. Do we set some things aside? Do we not actually become active in what we're supposed to be doing as far as encouraging others, sharing our faith, all those different things? Well, today is the day to live in the reality of the resurrection. We can dwell in the house of God today. Again, not physically. But that quality of life. And it's really up to us to look out and to understand these things that we can live out these principles so that we today can live out the idea that the kingdom The kingdom is here, but we are still looking forward to the resurrection. And I pray for all of us in this next year that we get to live out those principles, the principles of the resurrection, the principles that would allow us to abandon some of those things in our lives that are keeping us from it, that we would stop trying to run this marathon wearing a parka, you know, just in case. But we would throw it off and that we would run like those who really aim to win the race. Not encumbered by all these things we like to add in and put in our pockets and put in our backpack and wear the boots just in case and then try to run the race. No, we need to expel all of those different things that we are trying to include so that we might look forward to the resurrection, keep that in focus, and run, that we might win this race, that we would do what God has called us to do in light of the promises that he's made for us and fulfilled for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the promise that you have made to us that we will, Lord, dwell with you. Lord, we know that we look forward to being in your presence in a way that your disciples were, to actually physically be there to interact with you. At the same time, Lord, we know that we have access to your throne in prayer. And Lord, I pray that this upcoming year as we take this initiative on in praying in the, the morning, the midday, and the evening, Lord, to 
be in your presence in a proactive way. Lord, I pray that we would remember that by the power of the resurrection, we are allowed to be called the children of God and that we are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in light of that resurrection today. That we might speak your word, that we might share the message of Christ, the good news to those who have ears to hear, and the threat to those who are evil, God. Lord, we pray that no matter the consequence, no matter the response, that in those opportunities we have to share your word, that we would do so. Today is the day of salvation, and if we are already saved, then when we say today is the day of salvation, we are talking about someone else. I pray that you'd bring them to our doors. I pray you'd put them in our way, and I pray you would give us the courage, the strength, the boldness to live out the reality of the resurrection today and into this next year. I pray this in the name of Jesus.